This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider. Margaret Chase Smith was a Republican politician from Maine who served in the U.S. House for nine years, the U.S. Senate for 24 years. She was also the first woman nominated for president by a major party in 1964. That's quite a resume. She was also credited as saying, Every human being is entitled to courtesy and consideration. Now, given that thought, consider these questions for yourself. Are you able to walk that talk these days, that every human being is entitled to courtesy and consideration? Or are some people in your life, or the world in general, no longer seen as interesting, but are seen as a threat instead? Do you dread going to some family events, or seeing certain neighbors who seem to hold different beliefs and values than you do? Is there any way to do anything about this, or is avoidance and polarization our society's destiny? Today's Peace Talks radio program is about how to move from disgust of another person's belief to a more engaged alliance. We'll discuss how when we disagree with others, we can do more than the extremes of avoiding them or screaming at them. Host Suzanne Kreider talks later with Rabbi Amy Eilberg, who is a spiritual director and author, also Dr. Srini Pillay, psychiatrist, brain researcher, and author. But she starts with Roxy Manning, a PhD, a licensed clinical psychiatrist, and nonviolent communication trainer. Roxy, you're a trainer with the nonviolent communication, shortened to NVC. And one part of NVC is a really deep listening to the other person. The idea is to hear needs, and you want to hear the needs of yourself, as well as the other person. So can you give us a list of those cross-cultural needs to listen for? Yeah, so the needs can include a lot of the basic things, the things that we normally think about that are around our sustainability and our sustenance, right? Like food, water, um, air, things like that. But some of the other ones that I think are really important are things like mattering, knowing that my experience matters, being understood, shared reality. For many of us, especially when we're looking at cross-cultural settings, the sense that my experience is so very different than yours. And do we actually have a shared understanding about how the world works? So those are some examples of some of the needs that are cross-cultural. If a person wants to use the traditional four-part model of nonviolent communication, what are those four full parts? Oh, great question. If I were to talk about the four-part model, I would say that it's observations. What's actually going on? What's out there, both externally, but another layer of observations I like to talk about are what's my history? What are some of the systemic things that are happening that might be impacting my experience? What are my feelings? What's stirring inside of me? What are my emotions that are stimulated by whatever's happening out in the world? What are my needs, the part that is so essential to NVC? What are those core values that I have and that you also have? And then also, what are some of the requests that I might want to make of myself or of another person when I think about my observations, feelings, and needs? When we disagree with someone and we use nonviolent communication, they say that um, with the model, If you disagree with someone, you're trying to build peace, you can either reflect your own experience or take a guess about the other person's experience. 
So I'd like to hear an example of each of those from you. Let me give you a scenario that relates to politics. Mm -hmm. So let's say I'm at a family dinner and someone else at the dinner knows that I support a certain politician. But that person says something very negative about the, per the politician. Well, let's hear two different things that you could say, either from my perspective or from the experience I would try to guess of the other person. Great. So in that scenario, I want to connect to my feelings and my needs. So if I heard someone disparage the politician that I'm really supporting, wow, I notice what's coming up for me, right? And so I could imagine from that place of connection saying to that person, when we're talking about this politician that I love and I hear you make those comments about them, I'm feeling really saddened and dismayed because it's so important to me to trust that no matter how much we disagree, that we can find harmony through respect, through acknowledging that no matter what this disagreement is about, finding ways to work together, finding partnership, to come up with a way that makes this world work better for both of us is something that matters to both of us. So that's one of the things that I might say to that person around what comes up for me when I'm hearing them put down somebody that I care about. But if I were really curious about what was going on for that person, I might ask them, wow, I'm surprised hearing what you're saying about this politician I care about. And I'm really curious. I'm wondering if the reason you said that is that you're feeling so hopeless because you're really longing for seeing politicians who show up in ways that seem like they're moving with integrity, that they're walking their talk. Is that what's really important to you that's leading you to, sh to speak in this way? So that's why I might check in, both around naming what's important to me, that having the sense of mutuality and working together in partnership to create a more equitable world for everybody where nobody is left behind, or checking in on what's important to them. Is it around integrity or the sense that people are saying and doing what they say they will say and do? Oh, I see. And so you form it in a question when you're trying to guess the other's experience. But how do we know which one to use? Do we use the self or the other? What builds peace? Well, I think it's both, right? And I think it's so important to remember that it's both. We don't have peace when I only focus on the other person's experience and I drop myself. Because after a while, I get resentful. But if I only focus on my experience and I have no care about what's going on with them, they're going to get resentful. Peace comes when we're genuinely curious about each other's experience and we're willing to both speak up. And speaking up is hard. I just want to name how hard that is. But I'm willing to speak up authentically about what's true for me and listen to what's true for you. So it needs to be both. It's a dance. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking with Dr. Roxy Manning, a licensed clinical psychologist, and a nonviolent communication trainer. Roxy, in case one of our listeners, you know, really wants to build peace when they disagree, but they're not really into nonviolent communication, what are some tips you could offer besides NVC? The first is to be curious. Absolutely think about whatever I know as my truth is one truth. 
this idea that there are multiple perspectives, there are multiple experiences in the world, and the best way to build peace is to be open and curious to the idea that other people's realities are also true, that there can be multiple simultaneous truths in the world, and that the more that we can um, engage with people and understand their perspective and invite them to understand my own, the more likely it is that we will find a path forward together for peace. So that's one tip. Another tip that I might offer somebody who's interested in creating peace, but who isn't necessarily um, <laughs> wanting to dive into NVC, mm. is peace starts within, right? I think about peace happening in many different places. There's a peace in myself. How am I holding myself? I know that when I started NVC, one of the things that really powerfully drew, drew me to it was my realization that I had internalized all of society's judgments about me. I'm a Black woman. <laughs> I'm an immigrant. I am fat by normal, um, what people would normally consider an ideal body weight. I'm hearing impaired. I've got a lot of different things that people discriminate against. And I had internalized a lot of negative messages about these. And I found myself moving through the world, judging myself harshly about everything. It is hard to create peace, to look at other people non-judgmentally when we're applying that to ourselves. So start to look at how you're holding yourself. Is there a way to bring more compassion to yourself and then to the people in your inner circle? And then to widen that to the people in your community and then to the people that you don't see as part of your community. But peace actually has to start from within because otherwise we just start to perpetuate these dynamics that also spread out and keep us divided from each other. In terms of self-compassion, it's easier to just point a finger at somebody rather than point a finger at yourself. So what do we do about that? Let me actually take apart that question. I don't know that it's always easier to point a finger at the other person. What I actually believe is that some of us are trained to look outward, to look for the external sources of our discontent, but some of us have been very well trained to look inward. So it's actually more, what are the patterns that you've fallen into? But for those of us who've been trained to look at the other as the cause of our problems, and we want to change that dynamic, this is actually where I find NBC very helpful. Instead of just looking at the other person, one of the ways that we... Pause for a second. <laughs> mm -hmm. This is one of the ways that I find NVC helpful. Instead of looking at people and blaming and putting them down and judging them, I start to actually ask myself, what's actually happening here? What's the observation? What's going on? And that helps me to separate out this kind of blanket there's this person in this category, and therefore they're bad. From here's the thing that's happening, here's the behavior that the person is doing, and here are the ways that it doesn't meet needs for me. Here are the ways that it doesn't meet needs for my community. And then I can actually start to engage with it, that it's not about blaming that person, but blaming or looking at 
what are some of the really important needs of mine and my community and the world that are not being met by this behavior? And how can I get this behavior to change? I think the most powerful path to peace is to realize that it's very easy to blame the individual and to leave it at that, to say that person is bad and I get to write them off. That family member always says these horrible things. He's a jerk. I get to write him off. But when we start to say, wow, that person is trying their very best to attend to something that's important to them. And when they do it in this way, here's what's not working for me. That's when I have a path to actually finding a way to work with that person, not to write them off anymore, not to have throwaway people. I see that a lot in our cancel culture, that it's easier to say, let's just cancel that person and say they're a bad person, rather than to say, wow, that was an incredibly painful and tragic way that this person showed up. And I can tell them that that behavior has to stop. And here's why that behavior has to stop without telling them that they're no longer welcome in my life. Are you saying that people act because they're trained that way by the culture? Yes. People, most of us, have not grown up in NBC settings or (laughs) in societies to tell us that behavior, that whenever someone is doing something that isn't working for us, that it's not because they're bad or that we're bad. That's what many of us are taught. And so it's so much easier to blame ourselves or blame the other person. But when we start to really take that in and to say, wow, that strategy was really ineffective. How can I help that person find a better strategy? Well, what a possibility to bring that person back into the fold. People of color are often asked to validate their experience or explain their experience. <laughs> and uh, like, you know, a person might say, well, maybe you didn't really feel that way. Maybe you just made it up. Or sometimes mm-hmm. they're told, well, um, you're talking incorrectly. You you shouldn't be so angry or you shouldn't be talking like that. So it just seems like what's the impact of telling people that they're doing things incorrectly? Wow. Well, for sure. When someone tells me as a person of color that, you know, prove that that happened, prove that this person said this to you. Or prove that that's what they meant, right? Because that happens a lot. I'll give an example, like a really basic example that so many people have heard, right? I do a lot of trainings. And one of the things I often get are people are like, oh my gosh, you are so articulate. You are such a great speaker. And if I feel an ouch about that, people expect me to defend like, no, that person didn't mean it. How do you know they meant it that way, right? What we need to understand is that it's not necessarily about the person. The person absolutely could have meant it in the most loving, wonderful way, that they love my word choice, they love the way that I explain concepts. It's not that I don't get that. But what I am trying to point to is when you say that comment, it stimulates for me all of the times in my life I've had people tell me, you're not smart enough, you're not articulate enough, Black people don't talk like this or don't write like this, all of these judgments about Black people. And that gets activated. So what I would want, and you mentioned people of color, Black folks, what I would want white folks to hear is, if somebody comes to you and tells you, this horrible thing happened, just be open to it. 
Don't ask them to defend themselves. Actually, ask them, "How was that for you? How did you feel?" Make some guesses about why that was hard for that person, because I can validate somebody's experiences. I can validate what got stirred up for them and what that connected to in terms of systemic inequities, without having to prove or disprove whether or not what they experienced actually happened. Right, as you said, it's about the history, not just the now. Exactly, and I think people are so afraid in our country about being deemed racist or sexist or any of these terms that. The minute someone says, "I can't believe you said that," they immediately think, "This is about me. I did something wrong," versus being really curious around, "Wow, what is what's going on, and what is the systemic pieces that are leading to this being so hard for you, and how can I hold that with you? What can I learn about that so that even if this wasn't my intention, I'm not contributing to another drop in that systemic pool." Let's use the scenario that someone in my family is saying something negative about a politician at the dinner table, and、mm-hmm. they know I support this person, but they say it anyway, and I get really, really、um, upset. I get really triggered, and when that happens, I'm not very empathetic. I'm not peace building. I'm not even very aware. What do、mm-hmm. I do in that moment at the dinner table? Ah.、Uh. So many different layers here. In my mind, it depends on the rank of the person saying that. Right? For many of us, if my parent says something like this, I would have a very different response than if my sibling said something like this. And the reason I'm naming this is this is a cross-cultural piece. A lot of times, when we start to learn NVC, we take out the fact that different cultures have different relationships、um, to different roles in the family, but The first thing I want to do is to notice that I'm triggered. I want to say, "Oh wow, I am getting so furious right now hearing this person," and I want to actually assess: is the next thing that's going to come out of my mouth going to contribute to peace, or is it going to be my just dumping my irritation and anger and frustration on this person? And how much do I care about this relationship? If I really want to contribute to peace in the family, if I want to have a family where we can disagree about these topics, then I might choose to say, "I'm really angry hearing how you've just spoken about this person, and I'm going to take some time out so that I can get really clear on what's going on for me." And I'd love us to put a pause on this conversation. I can make a request to stop this conversation. Without having to demand that I show up in this perfect, you know. <laughs> Fully process with what's going on for me. Way,、mm. if I have the capacity to show up in that way, then I might actually share with them what's coming up for me. I'm feeling hopeless around、um, how much I want respect for the things that I believe in and the people that I care about. And I would so love us to find a way to talk about our differences that isn't about putting down other people. That's really about what really matters to us, rather than. Um, judgments about people or these surface things. Are you willing to reframe this conversation and let me know what this person is doing that isn't working for you, rather than just tearing down the person? I can go to that place, but it's not necessarily a demand. I get to also say, I'm not having this conversation with you if that's where I am, and that's one way to hold self-care. Right. So you can ask for a pause, but not really jump up and leave the table. Absolutely. Yes. 
you can just say, I just need a pause. I'm going to take care of myself and I'll come back to this in a little bit. That was Roxy Manning, PhD and a licensed clinical psychologist and nonviolent communication trainer. You can hear more of her conversation with Suzanne Kreider at our website, peacetalksradio.com. The entire interview is there at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our November 2020 episode. Back with more about peace building when we disagree with Rabbi Amy Eilberg after this break. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com. I'm Paul Ingalls. Suzanne Kreider continues her conversations now about peace building when we disagree with Rabbi Amy Eilberg, doctor of ministry, a spiritual director, and author of the book From Enemy to Friend, Jewish Wisdom and the Pursuit of Peace. Suzanne started by asking Rabbi Eilberg, what does build peace and relationships? What builds relationship is when, um, hopefully, when both parties are able to really lean in and to see the person that's beneath the opinion, even if I disagree with the opinion, even if the opinion is odious in some ways, but I can still see the full human being beneath that opinion and maybe even can summon some curiosity about what would lead this human being who's before me to hold the view that they do. That's coming closer in my mind to peace building than, than avoidance. We tend to think that disagreement is going to be dangerous. And that is because most at, at, at a deep level, um, our brain responds to strong identity-based disagreement as it would to physical attack as if there were a bear charging across the savanna to come and attack me or my child. Um, somehow when someone, quote unquote, attacks my identity or attacks my sense of what it is to be in the world by expressing an opinion that I fundamentally wish didn't exist in the world, right? Uh, my limbic system responds as if I, I am under mortal attack. So, so we respond as if, oh my God, this is horrible that such a view exists. Um, most of the time, conversation is not dangerous. It can be challenging. It can be heart opening. It can require a lot of effort. Um, but it, but it usually isn't as dangerous as it as it seems. I'd enjoy hearing a short excerpt from your book, from enemy to friend. So I'm going to read just a very short piece that is a third century Jewish text. I lifted a phrase out of it and inserted it as the title of my book. It goes like this. 
Who is the greatest of heroes? One who conquers one's own impulse to evil. As it is said, better to be forbearing than mighty, better to master one's own self than to conquer a city. And others say, in response to the question, who is the greatest of heroes? One who makes an enemy into a friend. That is to say, closing the book now, this is hard, hard work. And sometimes it's the hardest work there is. And would that more people in the world um, dedicated themselves to making, making peace in their own circles of influence, in their own circles of relationship. If more people were doing that, we would have a more peaceful world. Here's a two-part question. What is Shema? And what is compassionate listening? Yeah, so um, Shema is one of the Hebrew words for listen for listen in the imperative form. Um, and usually when, when we use the word Shema, we're thinking of a, a specific example of the verse in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Shema Yisrael, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Um, that's, it's a verse in the Torah, and it becomes a prayer, a very central prayer and statement of faith um, in all Jewish liturgy. In fact, it's, it's the prayer that uh, Jews hope to say um, before they die um, as, a, as a kind of last profession of faith or of, of meaning um, before dying. Um, compassionate listening uh, is, is used with a small c and a small l, but it's actually the name of, a, of an organization, the Compassionate Listening Project, that has a very sophisticated and profound um, approach to the listening process. I most associate with Compassionate Listening, capital C, capital L, although it's not completely unique to that system, um, the idea that every piece of communication has multiple levels. On the surface, there is the exchange of information about content. And on a somewhat deeper level is the emotion that's connected with that content. Usually when, uh, when a conversation gets hot, it's not only because there's, there's an academic difference between the two opinions. It's because the content is emotionally charged um, for one or the other. Uh, of the of the conversation partners, and deeper still than emotions, which can be very deep, but but come and go, as we all know from our experience. Even deeper than that, there's a level of um, core value or deep meaning or identity um, that lies at the core of um, many impassioned conflicts. And if it weren't for the fact that this piece of content. Um, spoke deeply of something that is essential to who I am, such that when someone challenges it or comes to me with a very different um, perspective, it's tremendously challenging. It, it's because uh, it's about it's, it, this content touches on my core essence. Um, so, the, so the key to good listening, to compassionate listening, is not getting stuck, as people so often do, only on the level of content but of actively listening. What, what are the feelings going on in the other person and in me? And what are those core values that are so strong that are threatened by this conversation um, in the other person or in me such that it makes it so hard to remember 
that actually the person I'm in conversation with is a human being who has the same basic needs that 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 I do, um, despite this sometimes very significant disagreement. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking with Rabbi Amy Eilberg, a spiritual director and the author of From Enemy to Friend, Jewish Wisdom in the Pursuit of Peace. Your book, From Enemy to Friend, talks about the loving-kindness practice. What is that and how can it help with peace-building? Loving-kindness practice, um, known in Buddhist circles as metta, which, uh, as I understand it, is the, is the Pali word uh, for kindness or or friendliness or benevolence um, is a practice. It's meditation practice in which, um, for whatever time one has in a meditation period or in a week long retreat, whatever it may be, um, the practice is to recite a series of four phrases um, that are basically wishing well being or praying for well being um, for oneself and for others. So there are different versions of the, the wishes for well-being. One, one version goes like this. May you be safe. May you be strong. May you be happy. May you be at peace. Can you also offer the loving kindness while you're talking to someone? Like in your head you're saying it to them? Exactly. So the, the, the way that uh, metta practice, um, oh, there's, one, there's one other stage of the practice, which is to, to offer those wishes of well-being for everyone, for the whole world. So you can imagine if you were very well practiced in this, um, in this meditation and you did it every morning, Right, and you spent a week every a week or a month every six months, real really getting that deep inside your being. You would be cultivating a readiness to bring that desire for the other person's well-being um, into ideally every conversation. I I can wish that. It's not always my first inclination, but I can wish that even for a political figure who is most anathema to me, because he's he's a human, right? He has loved ones. Yes. He has children. He has wishes and hopes and dreams uh, for his own life, even if I disagree with him about everything, even, even if I believe that he does harm right, to the world, I can still wish him well. So if in the midst of a difficult conversation, one can dip dip inside that practice, maybe I, I, I've put my hand on my heart just now as I'm talking, and remember that deep inside me there is a, there, there is a profound desire for every human being to have what they need. If I could call that to mind, even in the midst of the, of the difficult conversation, then usually at least my part of the conversation goes differently. One of the things that most uh, shuts down or endangers conversation is the lack of curiosity. The posture according to which I am certain that I know everything that the other person is going to say. I know what they believe. I know why they believe it. I even know what they're going to say next. There's nothing that I can possibly learn from what they have to say. And I'm really, I'm not at all interested in what they have to say. I'm just, 
in order to be, you know, decent, I'll wait, I'll pretty much wait till they finish. Maybe I'll interrupt them, but mostly I'll, I'll wait till they finish before I jump in giving them, you know, what really is the truth, which is, which is my perspective. That's, that's the, the lack, the absence of curiosity. So in, in highly pitched political conversations, for example, you know, we all feel that we've been through this, these conversations so many times, we've all read a lot, we've all studied a lot. We're very certain that our position is the correct one, myself included. Um, it is that lack of curiosity, even as to what would make a person um, who's, again, sitting before me or on the other side of the Zoom or, you know, it, quoted in the newspaper, what would make a person see this issue so differently? And And that's even a lower level. I mean, maybe... It's I am hard pressed to be curious about um, the content of a racist screed, right? Or an anti-Semitic screed. I don't respond to that, honestly, thinking, oh, that's really interesting. I'd like to know more about that. Or really, you know, something shuts down in me. I I I I don't want I don't believe I have anything to learn from that. But in my best moments, I can sometimes summon curiosity about what it is about how that person has grown up, where they come from, what kinds of life experiences they have had, what have been the influences on them that could lead them to such different experiences. And I can be curious about that other human being, even in those cases when we're talking about something in which... I really am not open to changing my mind, um, but still there's another human being sitting, sitting before me. And, and even, is it possible that if I came from circumstances similar to, to theirs, um, might I see the same issue um, differently than I do today? That's, that's the power of curiosity. Rabbi Eilberg, is there a communal narcissism today? sort of like the Greek mythological figure Narcissus, who only looked at himself, where today people are in political groups who only talk to each other or listen to agreeable media. Uh, that's really a wonderful, wonderful image. That is not, not just to think of the narcissist as a, you know, as a particular psychological pathology, but, but perhaps as a pathology of, our, um, of, our, of the political moment in which we live. Uh, we're all sort of reflecting. We talk about the echo chambers. That's you know oral rather than visual, but we're you know we're we're hearing ourselves echoed back, you know, reflected back, or seeing ourselves reflected back, and um, not interested in letting in any input on in seeing it, really seeing any any other image. Another way that I might language that um, from the Jewish tradition and from other uh, religious traditions as well is about the virtue of humility. Arrogance is when I believe that my truth is the whole truth, 100% the truth. There's nothing that anybody else from beyond my bubble could, could possibly say that could add anything to my perspectives. Um, humility says, I am just one human being. I have the fullness of my own life experience, but only my own life experience. There are seven plus billion other people on the planet who have very different life experiences. And I always have something to learn. 
from um, from something from someone else, and that's actually very very interesting. You see how this this really comes together with curiosity and the and the lack of curiosity. Rabbi Albert, what would you say to someone who says something like, "Hey, you're just really stupid to be this open and this curious because you're going to get hurt. There's lots of evil in the world, and you shouldn't be listening to everyone." Um, as for getting hurt. Um, yes, an open-hearted life can be a, 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 is not a pain-free life. And a life in which we lean into um, deep and challenging and engaged conversation um, with others who are not like us in some ways um, is, it's not an easy life. Uh, it, that the questioner is absolutely right, that there's, that there's pain in it. There's pain in all learning. Right. There's pain and repentance. You know, when I realize I've been doing something wrong and I decide that I want to come back to the person that I aspire to be, it's painful to recognize that. So that, that is to say a good life is not necessarily a pain free life um, or I might say a pain free life is maybe not an entirely good life. So I completely agree with the question that there is pain in this. Um, but I, I think I disagree with the. Uh, the premise of the question, what I teach about dialogue and peace building does not mean that um, I don't also engage the world in ways other than open-hearted dialogue, right? It's, if someone is coming at me with obvious intent, intent to, to create harm, uh, to create physical harm, that's not the time at which I stop and say, hey, let's sit down for a cup of tea. And I actually know peacemakers who believe in doing that, but I'm not at that level. At, at that point, I would, um, I would reach for self-protection. Um, I, I, would, I would focus on the, on the immediate um, danger. Um, so yes, there, there are dangers um, out there. Um, I am very politically active. Um, I work on behalf of causes that are very, very dear to my heart. I don't just say, just because I believe in dialogue, oh, well, doesn't matter. Maybe maybe this position is right. Maybe that position is right. No, there are many, there's, there, there are many things that are immoral in the world, and I fight against them very strongly. But my practice as a, as a peace builder and as a lover, as a, as a lover and pursuer of peace, as we say it in, in Jewish tradition, um, is to try to engage even in my political work, even when I'm doing battle for, um, for, for those who are underrepresented and um, uh, not, not given their due, uh, people who are oppressed in our society. And I'm, I'm really, I'm fighting for what is right. Um, e- even in the midst of that work, um, I want to not be doing that work from hate. I want to be doing, ideally, I don't get it right all the time, but my aspiration for myself um, in, in a very deep way, and that's why I'm, I'm comfortable sharing it with others, even though I know that I, uh, I might mess up as much as other people do, um, is to do as much of my work in this world, to spend as much of my time in this life as I can coming out of love and care and kindness even at the same time that I work very hard for the things I believe to be right. Rabbi Amy Eilberg is a doctor of ministry, spiritual director, and author of the book From Enemy to Friend, Jewish Wisdom and the Pursuit of Peace. 
You can hear more of her conversation with Suzanne Kreider at our website, peacetalksradio.com. The entire interview is there at peacetalksradio.com. Look for our November 2020 episode. Psychiatrist Dr. Srini Pillay is next as we continue on peace building with others when we disagree right after this break on Peace Talks Radio. You're listening to Peace Talks Radio. It's the series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Suzanne Kreider. Today we're looking for ideas to help us do better peace building with others when we disagree over something that feels substantial. Suzanne Kreider's last guest today on the topic is Dr. Srini Pillay, a psychiatrist, brain researcher, and author of the book Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. Srini, what was protective about the ancient brain's response to like a stranger or someone different? Well, I I think when we think about the primitive brain, we generally think about a brain that is reactive or responsive in order to protect us. And so many of the structures that we've inherited, like the brain's anxiety center, the amygdala, for example, um, we have in order to protect us from potential danger. And of course, you know, if if you think about the animal kingdom and what that was like, uh, running around in the wild, you, you needed that kind of response. But given that society has tried to organize itself into areas where, you know, we can be relatively safe com- compared to just roaming around in the wild, sometimes having that reactive brain can be overkill. Well, is that a reactive response similar to, let's say I go outside, I see my neighbor's yard, and they have a sign from an opposing political candidate. Is that the same kind of reaction? Well, certainly it is the same kind of reaction if you feel threatened at that level. And I think we've really grown into a very polarized society where uh, we have, in, in my opinion, uh, what, what is going on right now throughout the world, uh, both in terms of different responses to COVID, in terms of different political party affiliations, is we seem to have organized ourselves into a society of this or that. And to me, whenever the world appears to be so black and white, it's a sign that we are not in touch with the finer elements of our thinking and the nuances of our thinking. And so my theory around this is that there is a more abstract kind of anxiety, an existential anxiety, 
that is very threatening. The fear of death is like the primitive uh, anxiety we're talking about. The fear of freedom uh, is, is something I don't think most people think of, but in, I think it was Kierkegaard who put it best when he said that anxiety is the dizziness of freedom, that we actually are afraid of freedom. Fear of loneliness or fear of meaninglessness these are some very deeply rooted primitive fears that we call existential anxiety. And I think that when you, when you actually go out and you see an opposing person's political sign, part of, what you've, part of what we've done as a society throughout the world is we've actually ignored our existential anxiety and tried to create external reasons to account for why this feeling of dread is so terrible. Well, peace building is about both like the self and the other. So let's start with the self, because there's often these mixed emotions or judgments like, oh, I'm right versus I'm awful. And all this is going on. Let's say I'm listening to a person with a different view and I'm trying to build peace and I'm listening. So give our listeners some tips. How can people calm their brain in that situation? So a couple of things to remember. So COVID-19 is a very particular situation because you have this invisible predator that is threatening the lives of many people. And whether you believe it or not, uh, it's still the story and the narrative that you're surrounded by. Certainly when it began, you know, there were, you saw ambulances, you saw death counts rising. You saw hospitals being built in Central Park. You saw all kinds of very extreme things. These reminders of death are what we call mortality salience. And mortality salience, which is simply a reminder of the fact that we are mortal and that we die, mortality salience is something that biases the brain. And when it biases the brain, what it does it does many things, but one of the things it does is it makes you hold on to your point of view even more strongly. So at a time like this, the first thing is to be really aware that our brains are biased to hold on to our own points of view even more strongly than before. So that's the first point. The second thing is, well, if that's the case, how do I begin to calm myself down? Well, it's difficult to have emotional empathy when you disagree with somebody else's point of view. So probably the go-to would be to, to use cognitive empathy. And what cognitive empathy means is that you believe that, that, that we, there's a network in the brain called the mentalizing network that allows us to look at the world from someone else's point of view. And once you begin to look at it from someone else's point of view, you begin to understand how they feel. And so first, recognize your brain is biased. Number two, ask yourself, what do I share with this person? And number three is when we try to understand the world from someone else's point of view, we don't have to agree with it. We just have to try to understand, look, this is how this person feels. And this is the way they see the world. And no two people see the world in exactly the same way. So there are two problems with taking one side. One is, it cuts you off from what's special about you. Because I can tell you, not all Democrats are the same. Not all Republicans are the same. Not all men are the same. Not all women are the same. So to just simply pretend like 
everything about you is like everybody else in your group is a little strange. And a lot of the time, you can actually mm-hmm. overlap. So I think when you're in that situation, number one, recognize the bias. Number two, avoid emotional empathy. Number three, look for what's common with the other person. And number four, try to be like a movie camera behind their shoulder and look at the world through their eyes. Today on Peace Talks Radio, we're talking with physician Srini Pillay, psychiatrist, brain researcher, and author. When building peace, there's always the other. And let's say I'm listening to someone with an opposing view. And you've said before, I think, that the other person only exists in my brain. So how can I create some psychological safety for that other person? Well, in a number of different ways. First, I'll go with some basic ways, which I actually discuss in my book, Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try. You know, most, firstly, your brain has to be prepared to be able to receive a different point of view. And most people's brains are not because they're tired, they're fatigued, and they're burnt out. When you spend your whole day just focusing and focusing and focusing and and you get fatigued, it depletes a thinking part of your brain called the prefrontal cortex. And when your prefrontal cortex is depleted, you start to not care about others. In fact, one study showed that if you're watching a video, and if you're watching a video with intense focus versus just as usual, if you are given a problem to save someone, you actually decide that you're not interested. But if you feed that same group glucose, they start to become interested, indicating that you have to have enough energy in you to be able to take on another person's point of view. And once you have that that energy to take on that person's point of view, you can begin to think to yourself, okay, so now I can begin to adjust to to their point of view to try to understand uh, what's going on with them. And as you said, uh, every person outside of us actually lives in our own tissue. They live in our own brain. So if you're bad to someone and they get sad, that sad person, if you can see them or hear them, that that sad person is in your brain. They are literally living in your brain. And so if they're living in your brain, then whatever you cause other people, whatever you cause people outside of yourself, you actually cause to your own brain as well. And I think if you have enough food and rest, You will be able to appreciate this and you'll be able to then realize that what you'd rather have in your brain is a bunch of happy people so that your circuits in your own brain are affected in that way. And then how do we actually dissolve our own ego so we're not so enraged? So I think dissolving one's ego is an interesting state. I think there are things you can do long term, things like mindfulness meditation uh, that can help you really transcend yourself. So you can begin to not just believe that you are your opinions. Uh, you, can, you can actually believe that you are much more than that. The other thing you can actually do is use a, something that the poet Keats called negative capability. A negative capability is the ability to stand in the midst of extreme volatility without reaching after fact and reason. So rather than immediately reacting to someone, you can transcend your own ego 
by, by simply saying, well, I'm not going to even try to understand why and how and where. I'm just going to be present with this person so I can connect with them. Because what we often forget is that the outcome we're looking for is connection. And, and so I think that that's a really important piece. I think in terms of, of something more literal, like is there a way in which you can say, well, it, it's more than just me and them. It's the whole world. Like, like there are, people often think, well, you know, oh, those Democrats, oh, those Republicans, oh, those men, oh, those women. There are a lot of people in each of those groups. And I don't think that it serves us to defensively hold on to our own points of view without even asking the question, if I, if I had your point of view, how might that make me feel better? This is not a show about trauma, but in general, let's say, if someone has like a really intense trauma in their history and that makes it difficult for them to listen to other people, how could that traumatized person create maybe some healing for their brain so they can listen to opposing views? So a, a couple of different things. I think so often when when you're feeling traumatized, it, it's, it's hard for people who are traumatized because they're anxious, they don't have a sense of the future. Um, anything that happens may create, they may actually be hypersensitive to. So the one thing to recognize is to recognize that if, to use self-talk, to say to yourself, due to my trauma, my brain is on high alert. I need to remember that whatever I'm receiving, I'm probably receiving more sensitively than it was intended. And so every time I receive something, I might ask myself, how do I dial this down? I'm wondering if there are other unfocused techniques that can help build peace. Like, would it be crazy to use Halloweenism when you're trying to build peace with someone you disagree with? No, I think that would be fantastic. So, so psychological Halloweenism is a term that I came up with uh, that was based on a study that showed that when people try to solve a creative problem, if they imagined that they were an eccentric poet, they were statistically significantly more likely to become creative than if they imagined they were a rigid librarian. Now, obviously, not all poets are creative. Not all librarians are rigid. But in this, in this experiment, they asked them to do that. And what they found was that if you take on the identity of someone else, you, you, you can actually solve a problem more creatively. So you could ask yourself, for example, how might Gandhi or Mother Teresa or any kind of diplomat who, whom you really, who, who you really admire, how would they do this if you took on their identity it could really help you hear the other person better because you would take on also their equanimity and their ability to create space for others to connect. You've talked about how it's important to express mixed emotions. Like if I feel bittersweet or poignant or ambivalent, would we do that when we're talking with someone and they're disagreeing with us. Would we do that to build peace? Absolutely, because what that does is it allows the other person to understand that you're you experiencing the complexity of who they are. So, for example, uh, if, if you say to someone, 
there's so there's so much about you. So if someone disagrees with you, let's say they they are of a political party. If you are feeling not aligned with them, it's important for you to be able to make space to be able to create a context so that they know that you are prepared to hear them. Because in their brains, if their mirror neurons pick up, that you can say, listen, I, I like so much about you, but but there are a couple of opinions that I disagree with, and I'd love to see if we can agree to disagree or if we can even find a common uh, point. Uh, expressing these kinds of mixed emotions, like I feel happy and I feel nervous. Firstly, it's authentic, so the other person doesn't suspect you. But secondly, they realize that a simple difference of opinion is not going to alienate you from them or them from you. And it sets a context. And that's why I love what you're doing about peace building, because I think it's focusing on the solution rather than focusing on how can we stop all this violence or how can we stop all these this disruption. What I think you're saying, Suzanne, is uh, how can we build peace? Is there a way to build peace? And I certainly think that by naming your mixed emotions, you are being more authentic and more likely to build peace. That's Dr. Srini Pillay, a psychiatrist, brain researcher, and author of the book Tinker, Dabble, Doodle, Try, Unlock the Power of the Unfocused Mind. You can hear Suzanne Kreider's complete interview with him, or just more from the interview in our longer version of the program, at peacetalksradio.com. That's peacetalksradio.com, where you can hear this program again, and indeed all the programs in our series dating back to 2002. You can see pictures of our guests, stream or download the audio of the show, follow links to more info and resources on our topics. Sign up for our monthly newsletter, or importantly, you can make a donation to the nonprofit organization Good Radio Shows Incorporated that produces this show separately and independently from the media outlet that you hear it on. In addition to contributions from people just like you, we also get support from businesses like a Spinal Health and Movement Center of chiropractor Ruben Ramirez in Albuquerque's Knob Hill neighborhood. Also, we get support from the Albuquerque Community Foundation Ties Fund. Nola Daves-Moses is our executive director. Ali Adelman composed and performed our theme music. Our co-founder, Suzanne Kreider, produced today's show, which we're dedicating to Hannah Colton, a former correspondent for our show from 2018. She was a champion of social justice and fairness, who moved on to do award-winning reporting work at KUNM in Albuquerque, our home and partner station. Hannah died suddenly at the age of 29 in November of 2020. Our love goes out to her family and many friends who all agree that Hannah was a bright light, the kind of person the world needed more time with. Rest in power, rest in peace, Hannah Colton. I'm Paul Ingalls. Thanks for listening to and for supporting Peace Talks Radio.